Hi everyone, this is Jane. And just before we get into this episode, I want to remind you of all the really great stuff on our website at www.worldofwork.io. Over there, you can check out all the online seminars and workshops we do, as well as our team development programs. You'll also find articles on topics to help you thrive at work. So that's www.worldofwork.io. Now let's get on to the episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the World of Work podcast. You've got James here. And this is Jane. And today we are going to be having a conversation about one of the management dilemmas that we are speaking about in this series. So those of you who listen regularly will know we're running a whole series in which we're exploring the different challenges or some of the different challenges that leaders and managers face. Quite a few people have emailed in some of their challenges and we've explored those. If you've got any more, please do send them in to hello at worldofwork.io. In the meantime, though, we've got a specific challenge we're going to be exploring today, Jane. What are we looking at today? What's the challenge that leaders and managers might be facing that we're going to try and talk through a little bit today? Okay. So, as you said, this is all about the challenges that we face in management, and some of them have come from listeners, and some of them have come from you and I and our experiences. So, today, we are talking about when restructure is coming your way. So the context is pretty straightforward. Imagine you are the manager of a team of 10. Maybe you've got a couple of more senior line managers in your team, but the total number of people that you manage is 10. The organization is facing cost-cutting challenges and they're restructuring. You were part of the team that was consulted in quite a bit of detail. You shared your recommendations, only some of which were approved. And now it's your job to manage the team through the process. And it's simplest that's the situation. I guess there's a couple of things I just want to say. One is we are not HR experts. We are not going to be talking about the legal legal in detail. We're going to mention them a couple of times. We're not going to be talking about the legal and sort of regulatory approach of this. We're kind of assuming that you've got an HR department or someone responsible for that to make sure you're doing it. We're going to talk much more about as a manager, how do you keep the team going through it and how do you make it the least worst experience possible for them? Um, So I just wanted to mention that. And with that, I'm going to hand over to you, James. James, is this something you've got experience of? I've got like loads of experience of this. I just want to say restructure is coming. That's uh, that's all a bit Game of Thrones, isn't it? I quite like that. Yeah, restructure is coming. And I liked your reference there really early on to least worst as well. That's a great sort of anchor point to base some of this conversation on. Do I have experience of this? Yes, from a few different angles. To be honest, the majority of experience I have from this is being kind of on the other side. So being involved in designing and delivering and leading change programs that put through this type of change across organizations. So I've done quite a few of those change programs where I've been trying to support the restructuring of organizations. What's the new target operating model? What's business architects pulling together in terms of future ways of working, all that kind of stuff. And so doing a lot of that work on that side is something that I've actually spent a lot of my career doing. So a huge amount from that side. On the being done to perspective, as opposed to doing to others, if you will, I've had some experience as well, but the majority of my experience has been on the delivering of the change itself. What about you? So I'm really interested in this episode today, as I am with all of them, but particularly this, because I think you and I have had very, both had quite a lot of experience in this, but in very different contexts. So as you know, as most of the listeners know, I've never worked in an organization bigger than about 300 people, or certainly not in latter parts of my career. And I have worked predominantly in nonprofit organizations, and therefore funding means restructures happen pretty much on a cyclical basis every four years. Not always, but pretty extensively. And so I have been this person. Um, I've been this person. I've been in the team. I've been the manager. And I've been on the leadership team that's been shaping it, but always within small organizations and therefore the resources. And so you talk about business architects, people designing ways of working. I'm like, wow, 
Imagine if that wasn't just the five people sitting in the room who lead the organization trying to figure it out. So I'm really interested to hear this because you'll have a very different perspective on what might help people. But also just really interested to have this conversation because for me, my experience of restructure and my experience of working with others who are going through it, been through it, is that it is what I would refer to as a... I guess, a major career influence is for want of a better word. Like people fundamentally view their organizations and their careers differently when they've been through restructure, I think. And I think it happens every time. I think no matter how many times you go through it, it shifts your perspective of power. It shifts your perspective and what makes good teams and like who should be looking after themselves versus each other. It just, it changes the way you look at the world, I think. And yeah. certainly that's my experience working with other people who come to me, work with organizations. So I'm super interested to have this conversation and hear your experiences. Yeah, I'm going to jump straight back in on a little bit of what you said there, because it is really interesting. Obviously, people who've listened a little bit will know my background is financial services, mainly sort of large UK banks. And I think different sectors and different individuals, different functions within different sectors have a different set of experiences with this. As a piece of broader context for UK financial service industry, like most of the global services industry, our global financial services industry had some challenges after the 0708 recession in the US. And there were huge cost pressures on those businesses and changes in regulatory frameworks heightened some of those cost pressures on those businesses. So as an industry, the large UK regulated banks have been heavily cost focused for the last decade plus, last 15 years. So within those organizations, people have been through a lot of this type of change. And your point about these changes influencing people and their careers is really important. And I would say the first time that we in the organization I was in led one of these sort of cost-driven large restructurings, it had a really big impact on people. And it does. It's a really important, significant, powerful, potentially disruptful impact on an organization. Where we were, we ended up doing this on a really regular basis. So change kept happening and kept happening. And these types of restructurings got to the stage where every nine months there'd be something, probably maybe every 12 months, but the frequency increased. And people had a mixture of change fatigue, but also, I guess, sort of change resilience in relation to it. This just became part of the way of working in these organizations. So the impact on people does change, I think, the more they go through it. But despite this, there are always managerial challenges and things to think about when you're leading these changes more broadly or when they're happening to your team. And I think different sectors go through these sectoral financial challenges as for global economic conditions change. I know that in 2023, we're recording this, and this year there's been a big cost drive in the tech world, right? And it's probably the first time a lot of these really large global tech players have experienced the type of restructuring that the financial services industry has experienced for a long time. So I think these types of restructuring approaches and managerial approaches at a top level move through sectors. And I just think it's worth sort of noting that. So where do you want to start, Jen? What do you want to pick up with, kick us off? So I guess the best place probably to start is at the beginning. So generally within restructures, there is a point at which you know more than the team. In fact, there's pretty much every point you know more than the team. But there is this point which you know it is coming and you know the shape of it. And your team might have noted, known, had an income coming, maybe they've been involved in like a 100-day consultation and there's been like rumors going around and stuff like that, but it's not like nothing's firm. And I think what would be useful is maybe picking up from the point at which you know it's happening, right? And you know it's happening and you know that it's not a like for like, right? That everyone in the team, yeah, well, certainly in my experience, basically everyone, no one's matched is usually what happens. So within my experience, there's a couple of exceptions, but generally... 
no one's matched. There's less jobs than there are people. And you are at the point of needing to tell the team. And I guess the first thing I wanted to just mention, and I'd really welcome your reflection on it, is I always thought it was really important as soon as you start talking to your team about it at whatever stage you first talk to them, about giving them some certainty. So I was very passionate about scarf model social threats, David Rock's work. And I find it, I probably, it's the thing I hang on to the most in all of this, more than change sort of patterns, any of that stuff. And the reason is, I think I want to promise to the team how I'm going to behave. And I think it helps me face into tough conversations. It helps me hold myself accountable. There's loads I can't promise, but I can promise that I will, for example, update them regularly. Even if there's nothing to say, I will still send them an email saying, I haven't forgotten this is happening. I haven't forgotten it's weighing on your mind. I don't know anything more yet, but I will keep telling you until I do. So for me, that's always my starting point, letting them know what they can expect from me as a manager and also being really clear that they can't expect me to tell them everything I know. And that sometimes I'll be like, that's not confirmed yet. So I can't tell you. And that will be something I can't tell them. Yeah, I think I got some great stuff in there. I think the power of process is important here and that sort of role of transparency or as transparent as one can be in a good way, bearing in mind that you can't always be transparent. about. In terms of context, the way that this has worked in the organizations I've been part of in the larger type of organization, and these are fluid and it changes in different organizations. It's not always the same. But essentially, the way this process generally kind of works is that there is cost pressure. Senior leaders are told by other senior leaders that they should aim to achieve a cost saving of X percent, for example. We're going to need to shrink, I don't know, 15% of costs over the next two years. A program of work will be created, a project will be set up, a program will be set up to achieve that. People will then be drafted into that program or project and they'll start working on what that might look like, working with a group of senior leaders who know some things and maybe consultants and other internal secondes to work out what changes in predominantly in terms of headcount would lead you to be able to achieve and that cost saving. That is then mapped into a future organizational design operating model that would be the go-to operating model. Now, the majority of that is done behind closed doors, under NDA, often in a different site with different people working on it, with only the really senior individuals in the function or business unit that's being changed involved in that. So that's very much a locked way type of thing. And then the way that we experienced this where I worked is at the point that it was time for that to be made public, there was a really structured, clear process that would happen. Essentially, what would happen is the most senior individual would send out a series or their exec team would send out a series of meeting invites for the next day. And that becomes an announcement day. So that is an announcement day. That announcement day starts with the most senior person reading, essentially, a scripted summary of the change that's coming and what that looks like. That is then followed up by a cascade of, again, scripted conversations from descending hierarchical senior leaders down to a lower level, each being a little bit more personalized and a little bit clearer, guiding everybody through what to expect as a result of that change. And what kind of happens at that stage is you're saying, well, here's our current structure and operating model. There's going to be a future change an operating model. We're not going to be able to map everybody into each role. This is what the process is going to be like. And the leaders say that in increasing detail as it goes down through the organization, cascading normally through two, three, four layers of people. And then after that, what would happen is managers would put in scheduled one-to-one calls or those meetings would basically instantly be scheduled. So each manager would have a one-to-one with each colleague in their team. So that process was hugely regimented controlled from our perspective by an internal comms team, but scripting, 
all of the, the HR type things that you've spoken about are done in the background. Union negotiations are done in the background. Everything is above board. Everything is regulated, controlled, considered in advance. And what we find is that once you get on that, I guess, steam locomotive of change and those calls start happening and everything starts happening, the process leads people along. There's a lot of repetition of information. People hear things multiple times. It's disruptive and it's difficult and it sort of blows the week up as people have all these meetings to go to and things to absorb. But people do really get a chance to hear. And then it gets to the stage where the managers start having those one-to-one conversations and, and they get provided manager briefing packs that help them understand what some of the impacts are and what they can and cannot say and where to go with those conversations. And that's the end of that first stage, which is the announcement stage. And then the way the restructuring process worked when in doing this is the announcement stage kicks off all kinds of other things that lead through to the remapping of people to roles over a six-week, perhaps, or three months, perhaps, process, guiding people through to ultimately what the new operating model looks like with people in those different roles. So again, what that process looks like is very clear. And that process of getting from the announcement through to the outcome is a process that's predefined and can be shared at this stage. So a lot of that guidance around what to expect is hugely important and baked in this stage. Now, different organizations do this in different ways. Some have a combination of outcomes announcement. So sometimes there are just straight up redundancies that, that happen, particularly in other countries. And so some of those impacts are quicker. But a lot of the work that I've done has had that outcome with a defined process leading, sorry, the announcement followed by a defined process leading to outcomes. So, so that's a lot of what I've seen. And with that repeated messaging, that guidance of processing, all of that sweeps people along and strips out some of the risks around Communication makes sure people hear a lot, lets people talk about what to expect, helps people provide some of that certainty, brings a sense of as much as possible fairness around a process. So a lot of that stuff's brought in by that heavily structured approach. So have I talked to you about that stuff before? Have you Did you have a flavor of what was there? How does that- it's interesting because obviously the organizations that I've worked with have none of that. Sorry, let me rephrase. They have none of the resources that are spent in the sort of management of process. So quite often in the organizations, so if you're a manager with more than one tier below you, you're probably involved in all of that. So things like designing the common strategy all happens with that leadership team because there's only there's only 300 people. There's only maybe if you've got 300 people, you might have 50 managers and you might have 10 people as senior leaders. And it won't always look like that. But do you know what I mean? There's a limit to how many people and the comms team quite often will have only dealt with this within the context of this before because generally the comms team, internal comms might be one person. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So I guess it just brings to start reality how much harder this is for managers in smaller organizations because they don't have that stuff around them and how important comms is. I think it makes it harder in that perspective. Uh, One thing that I think is something maybe a little bit of a challenge for some of the people in the larger organizations is sometimes they find out the day or the day before they need to go straight into those conversations with their colleagues themselves. So there's sometimes that bit of a blindsiding that I think is maybe more likely in some of the larger organizations. But that's just a hunch. And I know that it's hard for people who are reasonably senior middle managers in these large organizations to find out and to be going through all of this blindly while also trying to lead their team through it at the same time. So I don't know if that's the same in smaller organizations, but that's been one of the challenges is they don't know what's happening themselves. They're not clear. They've only just found out themselves that something is coming. They don't know what their own outcomes are. They don't know where they'll end up. And at the same time, they need to provide some better assurance for their team. 
And I don't know if that's the same in smaller organizations. It's no, just a reflection. I think that's really fair. And I also, I think it relates to conflated things. One is not knowing, which I think is massively problematic because of the way in which you have to behave in the moment. And I think generally in the smaller organizations I've worked for, that's not the case because at some point you've had to be consulted because you might be the only person who knows how product works. Yeah. But I think it also, you're conflating something else, which I think is worth picking out, which is this idea. I knew that was going to happen. I was just thinking about something that happened to me and now I've completely lost it. So that's good, listeners. I think that's the first time that's ever happened in the history of us recording podcasts. I was probably caught up in all the multiple times I've experienced restructure. But I think, I guess the point I was trying to make was that if you don't have the time and space to know about your own role, then you are asking a huge amount of a manager. And I don't necessarily think that's a big or a small thing. I think there are situations where people in big organizations are going in and going, well, I know I'm safe because I just happen to know that this is a particular area. They're not looking at restructuring. But I think that makes a big difference. So as a manager, you're sitting there and you're like, well, I know I'm likely to be mapped or even likely. I know I'm likely to be mapped because I know how many jobs there are versus I'm pretty confident that I'm in this too. And I think it has pros and cons because I think on the one hand, it's much easier to self with others to go, look, hey, I'm in this boat with you too. So they tend to be more compassion and your team will be more forgiving of mistakes. And it also takes down barriers. But on the other hand, obviously, if you know everything's going to be okay, you're highly motivated to keep everyone engaged because you're like, well, I'm going to be managing this team in the end. And also it allows you to focus on them, right? And I think that's really hard. So when I've been through, I'll never forget, I went through a restructure many, many years ago, very junior. And I was challenging HR on something about the conditions with which my team had been given to reapply for their jobs, right? Basically, I didn't think they'd been given enough time because it was a major organizational deadline the same day. And I got pulled aside by HR and they said, do you not understand you're safe? Like, do you not understand that you've been mapped? And I was like, yes. And it's the fact that I've been mapped that allows me to fight for them because they're going to be my team at the end of all of this. And that matters to me. And I think it really was stark to me in that moment that if you know or you are likely, we've got confidence in the likelihood of your outcome, it changes your perspective completely. Yeah, I very much agree with that. So I guess different people will be in different places with that and definitely worth calling that out. Do you have anything that you want to build on sort of what I shared there? Where would you start? What are some pieces of advice that you would have for a manager who either knew that this was coming and it's just been announced there are going to be these changes or maybe they didn't know it was coming and it's just been announced? What, what are some of your bits of advice for somebody who is leading this? Okay, so I'm going to run through three or four things that I just think really matter. Right. So I already mentioned scarf theory, being predictable and reliable and giving people some sense of certainty in an uncertain world is really powerful. Even if that certainty is just you'll get an email from me every week, whether I know anything or not. And being really open about like, there are going to be times I can't tell you stuff and I will know and you won't. And that's just the way the legal or the regulatory system works. I think being present and having presence showing up more often, like don't miss team meetings during restructure periods. Just don't. It's just a really bad plan. I think the point that you made that in bigger organizations, they'll hear things five or six times. Uh, Small orgs don't get that. So do it. Like repeat everything 15 times. When is the date? When are the things happening? What can they expect? Just repeat the same messages. Uh, Challenges senior leadership to have an FAQ, a really, really detailed FAQ that is public facing and that people can add questions to and be answered. Be conscious that everyone will react differently and you do not get to decide how people should or shouldn't get over things, deal with them, cope with them. Your job is to keep the show on the road while things are going on. So understand and be emotionally connected to where your staff are whilst also thinking about how to get things done. And I think that's really, really important. 
And you have to give people a little bit more space. Don't make tight deadlines. Don't put people in unnecessary periods of pressure during restructure. It's just not fair. And then I think for me, there's two really big things. One is around if you know anything about people's backgrounds, it helps here right? So if you understand that someone's just recently got a really big new house and they've really stretched themselves, you don't need to raise it with them, but you do need to be conscious that that may be additional. And when you go into one-to-ones asking people, this is stressful for everyone. Are there any particular things that this is going to make this particularly stressful for you because of, and is there anything that you want to talk to just to have a space to talk about it and know what the organization offers? So if the organization has EAPs, employee assistance programs, know about it and signpost people. And that links to my last point, which is about you and as a manager, keeping yourself going and knowing your boundaries. So it is really easy to try and want to fix the world for people and you can't. What you can do is keep yourself healthy, keep yourself sane and manage boundaries appropriately. Don't turn into a counsellor in this, but do signpost and make sure people are getting the support they want and, and deserve to have access to and do advocate for them. If you think the process isn't working, challenge upwards. If you think there's something that people have missed in the processes it should be happening, challenge upwards. But at the same time, this is the point at which I tend to lean heavily on my close friends. People I speak to once a month, my closest friends, suddenly I'm talking to them a lot more frequently. And that's because I need a place where I can trust to process that I feel pretty crappy about myself some days. So that's my whistle stop. Any of those things resonate with you? Yeah, a lot of that stuff crosses over quite a bit. And I guess one of the things that I think I'll just check out, but I think goes across all of this that links to this is that processing stuff takes time, right? It takes time for you. It takes time for your team. It takes time for everyone. And it's really hard to sort of hold on to that and know that. But this stuff takes a little while. This isn't day one of this isn't the end of this process. And what happens in day one isn't what will happen on day two in terms of the way people feel about it. And what you'll see when there is an announcement like this is that people will flip to focusing on processing. That's what happens. I do remember the first time I was part of a program of work like this and we had the organizational announcement that change is coming, restrictions coming. I remember getting off call and looking around the large open plan office I was in and nearly everyone was up from their desk. You know, a call, that first announcement call finished People came off their headsets, put their phones down, pretty much everybody stood up and went to somebody else to have a conversation. And even then I knew that there was something in that processing space going on. I didn't really know maybe as much as I know about how people work, but this was people trying to make sense of what was happening around them. And some people were excited, some people were anxious, some people were scared, some people were uncertain. All of those different emotions were there as people were kicking this information around. And the metaphor, the image I even had at the time was... It felt like somebody had put a new ball into an enclosure and everyone was there, like kicking it around, moving it around, trying to make sense of this thing. And it takes time. So it'll take time for you. It'll take time for those around you. And you could read up on things like the change curve and stuff like that. That's helpful. But I guess just knowing that this stuff takes time is really important. Something that you talked about that I think is really important and resonated with me is the importance of looking after yourself throughout this. Whether you've known in advance or not, this is an emotionally charged or often an emotionally charged situation where people are experiencing a range of emotions as they try and process this. Some people will be angry. Some people will feel it's unfair. Some people will be giddy with excitement and that sort of nervous, I shouldn't laugh, but I'm going to laugh anyway because it's all a bit much type of space. All of those types of emotional pressures are there. And even if you're not feeling them, being around many other people who feel like that can be, I guess, a depleting or draining experience in itself. It can be tiring. It can be confusing. So I think it is important to make space to look after yourself. I think your point about speaking to your friends and peers is really important. 
So looking after yourself, speaking to your friends and peers is a great thing to do. Maybe having peer groups to do this in a helpful way, to discuss this in a helpful way is really good. If you are doing things like a series of one-to-one conversations with people to talk about what an announcement means for them, where possible, schedule breaks in for yourself. You know, don't do this back to back. Leave space for them, leave space for you. Don't overstretch it if you have time and an opportunity to do this. Also, if you are somebody who is leading managers who are themselves going to be cascading in the place of uncertainty, try and make space for them and support them as well. It's difficult, but recognize that they are going to be doing difficult things themselves if you're a manager. So try and encourage them to leave space, leave breaks, have opportunities to get out of the office, go for a walk, all of that stuff is is really important. So that really stood out for me as something you said that I wanted to, to elaborate on. I've got lots of other thoughts, but I guess one of the things that sort of goes through my thinking on this and is increasingly part of what I would think about were I doing this again is to try and be clear on, I guess, who you want to be. And we talk sometimes about our values and the importance of having a set of personal values and self-awareness and clarity on this. And at the very beginning, you said, how do we make this the least worst outcome? I think something that would be really important for me in this situation, try and think about what my values are. And try and be clear on who I wanted to be as a leader and manager throughout this. What are the stories I'd want people to say? How would I want to look back on the way that I behaved throughout this period? And try and be clear on that as much as I could in advance. And it's hard to think about and to navigate that sort of decision-making process on your values in that moment. But even so, I think it's worth trying to think, how would you want to tell the story of yourself in six months' time? Who would you want to have been? How would you want to have behaved? And what would be good? And I know that myself, certainly a younger version of me, would have been tempted with gossip and isn't the organizational dreadful and alignment to all those unhelpful thinkings. And now that's not who I'd want to be. I'd want to see myself as somebody who tried to think about what the end state was quickly, navigate some of that change myself, stay really compassionate, acknowledge that change often needs to happen. There's not too much benefit in shouting and railing about this. I'd like to try and move through that quickly, be kind, be compassionate, be considerate, be inclusive. I'd I'd want to sort of paint that picture of myself in advance and use that as a way to try and guide me through those difficult moments as this uh, this change conversations happen. Uh, That's who I'd like to be. And I think that sort of reflective activity is helpful. As a real side conversation, before I come back to you, Jen, I just want to say some of the things that I've done, I've seen or I've perceived people, this sounds a bit bad, get off on this a little bit and be kind of drawn to the power of being sort of in a position of authority and all of this. And I would just myself not want to be that type of person who seems to get a buzz from telling people about these negative outcomes. That's just a reflection. So when I see people who I think are indulging in their own importance and all of this, that that's something I kind of dislike and I wouldn't want to be seen as that type of person. So yeah, any, any thoughts on those reflections? Well, I think there's two things in that. One is I mentioned like having friends and peer groups and stuff like that. And you sort of picked up on that and I agree with it completely. But I do think if even if you are the least hierarchical manager in the world, now is the time to understand that everyone deserves the same information unless they are in a position they require something different. So unless you've got managers in your team who are managing, in which case they all require the same information, um, everyone should be getting the same information. And so I've seen some really inadvertent Like if someone's been really close to their number two, but their number two's actually been at the same level as three other managers and that number two has known stuff because they've been using it as a way of sharing. No one's meant any harm, but the reality is it becomes patently obvious when those people are together, they know different amounts of information and that's incredibly unfair. So find your peer groups outside of the group that you're managing. (laughs) This would be my first advice. 
And if you are managing people who are also managing people through it, create space for them to share to you so they can process their emotions. And then the second thing that I wanted to mention was, and it's really related to your last point there about like you've known people like kind of be really like almost gleeful, not gleeful is the wrong word, but like really into the drama, right? I was that person the very first time it happened. I was in my first job. I'd had three promotions. I knew my value to the organization unbelievably well. I knew it was a struggling organization and I knew I had value to them. And to me, change was exciting. And you say, oh, I didn't know as much about people. I knew nothing at that stage about people. All I knew was that I had discovered for the first time that some people didn't like change, which had blown my mind, my tiny little mind that was always excited about change. And everyone was really stressed. And it was the first time. And I remember a friend of mine who I also worked with me pulling me aside and saying, you have to understand that people do not feel the same as you. And you have to understand that they may want to talk about it with others, not you. They may want to not talk about it. They may see you as a threat. They are absolutely entitled to feel all of those things. And you may not be the best person to help them through it if you cannot relate to them what it must feel like to not like change. And it was a really seminal moment. I'm still grateful to that person for pointing that out to me. And they were similar, right? They love change, but they were like, we get it, but you're not the right person. So you just need to dial it back. And we know you think you're being helpful, right? You're just not. And so for me, I realized it could be perceived that way, that I was really into it. I was just excited. It just hadn't really occurred to me. All of the people around me, I thought were brilliant. So I was like, well, there's nothing. It's just our chance to create a new department. And it made me realize how it's perceived, but it also taught me a much even more important lesson, which is that we all process differently. And I think I've had this conversation quite often with CEOs where I've said, sort of small orgs, where I've said, you've lived with this for six months now because it's been in the back of your head, it might come. Then there was a board meeting. You have dealt with and processed so much. We don't even have the same amount of time for these people to process. And they're not CEOs, right? They're not designed for this stuff necessarily. And they certainly don't have the experience to manage it. So the very least you can do is give them a few weeks to just, and they were like, they're really compassionate to start with because most of the people I've worked with have been brilliant people. But somewhere along the way, they get a bit impatient. And I'm like, no, you don't get this. Because do you remember six months ago when you were stressing on the phone to me about it? Right, well, that's where they are, except probably even before that. So you just need to, you need to accept on it and sit on it and stop being impatient about it. And I think it's that moment that if someone doesn't do that with senior people, that's when you end up with the comments like you're either on the bus or you're not, which is totally unhelpful through a change process. I've seen it a couple of times where people have said, well, we've given you time and now you need to accept it's coming and either you're on the bus or we leave you behind. And that kind of veiled and threatening language just, you know, it really annoys. It really annoys the good people who are on board with change, but have basic compassion because they're like, whoa, I was on the bus with you, but now I'm thinking about getting off because you're being an ass." And so I think that ability to recognize everyone processes differently and then be able to give them or help them make sure they've got the space to do that, I think is really important. Yeah, I think there's some great stuff in there. And with that, when something that's in my mind with this, how do we navigate those conversations with people well? I know that one of the challenges that's hard for individuals having these conversations with their team members is how do you acknowledge and validate and support the emotions and the feelings and that difficulty of navigating change that your direct reports are sharing with you when you're having these conversations it can feel unfair how do you make that feel like something that you're listening to but quite often at the same time in those conversations you get people saying things like this is unfair the organization's doing the wrong thing uh, don't they know that this that is a bad thing and it's hard to be both i guess accepting and validating of their emotions but not slipping into agreeing with their statements about 
this change being wrong and bad. So as a manager, part of our role is to hold on to the fact that this is what's happening, there are the reasons for this, decisions are made, blah, 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 and not let that sort of alignment with a message disappear while at the same time validating the emotions. So we don't want to, I guess, be a dissenter with our people. We don't want to say, yes, the organization's stupid for doing this, it's all dreadful, blah, 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 blah. We don't want to go down that route, but we do want to validate their thoughts and feelings and emotions about this. And I think it's just a bit difficult to manage that nuance at times. And I think it can be really tempting to say, oh yeah, I don't agree, I don't know what they're doing, but we better go ahead. And that's not a helpful, ultimate thing to do. And again, that's often not the sort of adult way to treat people. So walking that line of acknowledging emotions and feelings, but sticking to fact is a hard thing to do. And again, being intentional about that in advance can help. But I think there's a little bit of nuance in that. Have you experienced that? Have you seen that tension in place? Yeah, I think I have. I think it's a really difficult time the first time you go through it. And I think it changes every time you go through it, but your knowledge and your awareness, I know this is going to sound really obvious, but it is so contextual, James. Like it's contextual on your wanting to be with the organization. Like how much do you care? How much do you want to keep your team? How much do you see that they want to keep you? There's a real point. I've seen people go through restructures. And in fact, I went through one where I was like, I know I'm no longer the priority in this organization. I know I'm like, on. if I was going to group people, I'm on like group three. I think I'm good, but I'm not part of this core need. And therefore, somehow I was much more comfortable with it because I was like, well, I'm not worried about me and my team because I'm just going to help these people get the best job they want. And I think that's a very different experience. But I think the tension of what's right for the organization is also really hard. So there's so many tensions going on all the time. And I kind of feel like I guess it's why I bang on at the beginning about consistency and reliability and certainty, because my experience is that everybody's emotions, there are always these people, right, who just go through it and they're like, it will be what will be, will be, they're like Zen, right? <laughs> like, what will be, will be, and I'm just cracking on. There are also the people who jump straight away. So they're like, right, I'm off to find somewhere because I, I just can't be doing with this, right? I can't be doing with going through all of this, so I'm just going to go and find a job where I don't have to deal with it. But everyone else, really, I feel like everything changes so quickly and so fast that it's really easy to be inconsistent. And it's not through anyone's fault, but it's really hard to offer some certainty. And so I just feel that like there's loads of these tensions. There's all these different ways in which you're being pulled, pushed and thinking about and doing the day job and all of those things. And so, I don't know, I guess what I'm saying is that management of all those tensions and that management of emotion, I reckon just dial it up to 20% of your job for the next six months. Like just, I almost feel like it should come with therapy. (laughs) You know what I mean? I feel like there should be a golden rule where if you are managing people through this, it's like, here's your supervision period where someone's going to just check in and make sure you're doing okay. Yeah. And for me, so much of that goes straight back to that values piece, right? I know it's a bit of a broken record, but who do you want to be? Who's the manager you want to in six months look back and say, this is who I was. Spend some time, make a, a couple bullet points of who that person is and preempt some of those dilemmas you might face and look at them through the lens of those values or who you want to be. And it doesn't fix all the problems and it's hard to change the way we think about things, but pinning down some of those core things will help with that. I was going to just tell one little side story. I don't know why this popped into my mind, but then I had a couple of thoughts to share. We talked earlier on about the importance of sort of like NDAs and keeping stuff compliant and all that stuff. One of the first of these programs I was on, I was um, in a finance stream of a program looking at various things, looking at how to restructure a finance function and great teams and stuff like that. But I also was responsible for tracking program benefits, right? Which included things like cost saving, including salaries. And I had a schedule from HR of, you know, expected cost savings. And there was my name. So I was down there as a cost saving as a redundancy. I was like, oh, that's nice. 
what a way to find out that I'm on the uh, on an exit list. Yeah, anyway, that made me giggle, and I ended up not leaving and it all unwound. But there we go, just an example of a little gaffe that happened. And I so yes, the gaffes are extraordinary, and they're constant, right? They're constant. Someone just making a slip of saying someone's name instead of job title. Getting the job title. I've seen someone talk about the job title wrongly. And they've just got the word wrong at the end and said management instead of executive, even though we've all talked about it and we've all agreed what level it is. And suddenly there's a change in the room because everyone's like, oh, is that person going to be senior? And you're like, oh. And the problem is they backtrack and everyone's like, yeah, now you're backtracking because you've seen the reaction. You're like, no, yeah. just we've talked about 42 different versions and everyone's forgot the version we're talking about these days. Yeah. Um, the gaffes thing, you just accept. I like, you have to be kind to yourself about this stuff. You right? do, yeah. Pete, you can't be accountable. You can tell people that's not what we meant. It was an error. Sorry. We understand we make sense. We're dealing with a huge amount of information here. If people choose not to believe you, that's not on you. There's not an awful lot you can do about it. Yeah. And I guess I've just got a couple of final thoughts before we wrap up. It's kind of boring. Knowledge transfer processes post-announcement. We're not really talking about that here, but how do you move your team to where it needs to be if you bring in new deliverables into your team, if you bring in new people, if you bring on new responsibilities. As you're moving tasks around within an organization, there needs to be a structured process, particularly in the type of work that might be procedural and need to be done regularly to make sure that you move things between teams well. Having that structured process is important. And if you're a manager absorbing new work or handing new work over, you're probably going to be involved in managing a knowledge transfer process for a period of months or however long it happens to be. And that'll be a big part of the job. So just be aware that's coming and recognize that that's a key part of what the role is. You mentioned earlier, sometimes people just say, hey, I'm out of here when something like this is announced. And I think that's kind of cool. And interestingly, in some of the changes I've been, some of the people who I thought were really clear, strong performers were like, hey, yeah, this is coming. I'm confident I can get another job pretty soon. So I'm just going to do it. Like, why take a job from someone else? Why not move on? Now's the time. Let's do it. And there was something really kind of inspiring. It's not quite the right word, but reassuring about somebody just thinking, hey, I'm out of here. Great. With no resent, just like, I'm good. I'm going to do it. Let's go. Somebody else can have one of those roles. I don't need to fight for this. I've got something else. I want to do something anyway. So let's go. I've enjoyed seeing that. And of course, there are challenges with that around whether or not people are going to get redundancy payments or whatever it is. But there's something nice in that. And I guess the last point for me, depending on what level you are in the organization, it's worth knowing that the way you implement and lead changes like this can have a big impact on the future of the organization, on your culture, on the stories created, on the ways of working, on the mythology of your organization, all of that. There's a huge amount of opportunity associated with all of this. And trying to look for those opportunities at the early stage of this and trying to think about what do you want those stories to be? What type of organization do you want to be? How do you lead something like this in line with your values is really important. And the last thing I'd say is whatever you end up doing, however you're doing this, it's good to try and not burn bridges along the way. The fewer bridges you burn, the easier it is for good people to cycle back into your organization in the future if that turns out to be the right thing for them. Um, the more kindly they will speak about you, the better your reputation will be. So whatever happens, I'd say, look for the opportunities and try not burn bridges. And I guess those are kind of my final thoughts. Have you got any other final thoughts on something like that? All of those are really good advice. And to build on one of the things you were saying about some people leaving and knowledge transfer, Never forget that if you're planning on staying, the period afterwards, the team will not be the same. You have to rebuild the team. You have to go through the process of rebuilding trust. You have to go reforming. There will be weird uh, sort of splashes or ripples that go on for quite a while. I've had people a year later turn around to me and go, you never really fought for that person, did you? After something completely unrelated that they don't know about. 
So they didn't know that person came to me and said, I don't really want to stay. I'm ready to go. I'm actually focused on thinking about where I'm going. So please don't worry about me in this process. Like what will be, will be, but I'm also really open and I'm looking and they had got a job before the end of it. And I think the people don't know that and they don't need to know that, but they will have feelings that they have not shared about your behavior that might come out. And that may unknowingly be changing your dynamic of your team. And particularly... When organizations restructure and then new people come into that team, about three months later, there's a hidden resentment of why did someone have to go through all that emotional pain? And then the other thing I would say is people never forget. They really don't. Like they just don't forget how organizations treat them in those situations. And that's the good and the poor, right? I can still tell you how every single one of my restructures, whether I was involved or not, made me feel, made other people feel, where they hurt people's feelings, where they were disrespectful, where they got it really right. Yeah, they all become part of your history, don't they? Really do shape the stories of your past and shape who you are now. So great opportunities, but I guess some risks. But when well navigated, this can have actually a good impact. Brilliant. Okay, well, I think that's probably all we have to say on this topic. A great topic. We could talk about it a lot. But let's wrap this conversation up. Again, this is part of our Management Dilemmas series. We've got more on our list. We've got some more requests from other listeners. If you have anything you'd like us to chat about, please do send us an email, hello at worldofwork.io, and we will add you to our list of podcast topics and cover it in the future. So I think that's it from us. It's just time to say goodbye. So it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Hi, it's Jane. I just wanted to say thanks for listening to the whole episode. If you enjoyed it, if you have a question, or if you just want to say hi, you can find us on Twitter at worldofwork underscore IO. Don't forget, you can also find out more about what we do, including our online seminars, workshops, and development programs on www.worldofwork.io. 